turn your attention this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 5. And we begin reading in verse 19, this great book. Paul wrote, church at Rome, when he appealed unto Caesar, he felt a desire to go to Rome. He got there, he found out there were already believers there. I'm going to tell you what, God's got a church in every nation, tribe, tongue, nationality. What a great God. Aren't you glad the Lord is a personal Savior? He doesn't work through governments. He works through individuals. You can find God in any situation, any crisis. God comes near. He doesn't distance himself from you. When you go through a trial or a struggle, he comes close. Romans 5:19. For as by one man's disobedience, we know this is Adam, many were made sinners. That's when sin came into the human race. So by the obedience of one, this is Jesus, shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense, that being sin introduced into the human race, might abound. The law kind of defined it and gave it the teeth to have consequence to the offense or to the sin. The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Oh, hallelujah. That's what Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, what that means to us. That as sin hath reigned unto death, some would say then that sin is more powerful than grace because sin reigns or is in control even unto death. Even so, might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Even in death, grace does much more abound. It doesn't matter how bad things get, God's going to have the final say. Grace is going to have the final say. I want to speak this morning on this subject, the strength of resistance. The strength of resistance. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. It's not an uncommon thought or even a principle that's unfamiliar to us that we need resistance in the natural world to function properly as human beings. The resistance of gravity keeps us from floating away and keeps our muscles from deteriorating. We, uh, we struggle um, just with the resistance of gravity pushing against us. Um, you know, we hear these sayings like what goes up must come down and all of these natural laws and principles that came because of the ever-present force of gravity. If you've ever watched people, you know, video clips or whatever about folks that have stayed in the space station for maybe even weeks or months in a zero-gravity environment, they have, to, they have to spend several hours a day working on stationary bikes and, and uh, just, you know, with make-believe resistance because they don't have resistance in the atmosphere. And uh, it's pretty cool to watch. Like when they eat, you know, the little morsel just kind of goes floating by. And sometimes when you see that, you're like, that looks like that's so cool. But actually, a prolonged period of time in that environment can be very destructive. 
So they have to work at bikes. They got to do all of this to keep their muscles from collapsing because we were made for resistance. We get strength from resistance. It's the struggle of childbirth that causes a baby to develop the necessary strength to survive outside the womb. It's proven that people that work harder live longer. Even endorphins that are released in humans as they are committed to bodily exercise. You feel better when you're exercising. It's better for you physically and mentally and emotionally because these bodies in this natural world were designed to thrive in resistance. So all through nature, this natural world that we live in communicates to us through one example after another that we need resistance. Well, we know that the physical world illustrates to us the spiritual world. So this principle is also true in the spirit realm. There is something about resistance that makes us stronger. Spiritually speaking, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament tells us about the strength of resistance. Early on, we see that Joseph is, is favored even when he was a boy and his younger brother, uh, Benjamin, was not yet born. He was favored by his father because his mother, Rachel, was who Joseph really loved. And when he, Joseph, um, we, we see, was the only child at this point of Rachel. Now, later on, his Younger brother Benjamin was born, but his mother died even in the childbirth of his younger brother. And, and, and we, if we go all the way back and we trace it back, we'll see that, that Jacob, whenever uh, Joseph's father Jacob, who was a twin, Esau was his twin brother, and they had that conflict because he um, you know, wanted his father's birthright. He was the younger one, and the older brother always got the birthright. But Jacob was hungry for it, and Esau really didn't care a whole lot about it. So he tricked his father into getting that blessing from the father. And, of course, Esau then said, I'm going to kill him. Jacob takes off running. He's out in the wilderness. He's got to go find his cousins, his aunt and uncle, and try to find another group that he can live with and live in peace. But God meets with him and says, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. He has, a, he has that dream. He lays his head down on the, that, that stone, and he sees that ladder that we refer to as Jacob's ladder, angels ascending and descending. And God tells him, I'm going to be with you. And he goes and he starts to... Uh, uh, find, you know, his aunt and uncle and Laban, all of them, and then he falls in love with uh, Rachel. And he says, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel. And, of course, Laban, being her father, said, that's great, but you're going to have to work seven years to be able to get her hand in marriage. And so he worked for seven years. He was so in love. It just seemed like a day. It just, like, went by like that. And uh, he's so excited, and he's, you know, he's caught up in the uh, intoxicated environment of love. And, and then, you know... After he gets married, he pulls that veil off. He realizes that it's not Rachel. It's her older sister, Leah. And he says to the dad, hey, what's up with this? You know, I worked seven years for Rachel. Remember, we had a deal. And he said, yeah, but the older sister has to be married first. Well, the Bible is pretty clear, even when it's not flattering. And the Bible says that Leah was not fair to look upon. And apparently the dad didn't think she could ever find a husband. So he pawned her off on an unsuspecting Jacob. And Jacob's like, yeah, but I don't care about Leah. I worked seven years for Rachel. He's like, well, you can have Rachel, but you've got to work seven more years. Boy, he was a trickster, that Laban was. He, they really had met their match because Jacob was named Jacob. 
because it literally means the deceiver. And uh, he, even in the womb, he was fighting and tugging and hanging on to his brother's ankle. And there was, there was a lot that was happening in Jacob's life, even as an infant. And so he worked several more years for Rachel. Well, Leah was able to have children. Rachel was not. And so it was a, it was a miracle that she even had a son. And when she finally did have a son, of course, Joseph. And Joseph, he was so loved by his father because he came from Rachel, who he really loved. And... Um, so, you know, it comes time for, finally after all these years, for him to go back and be reunited with his twin, Esau. And he's very fearful of this moment, and he uh, goes and puts the family in a safe place, and he wrestles with... Uh, the Lord appeared in the form of a man. This is commonly referred to as a theophany. In the Old Testament, the Lord would appear in the form of a man. And, and so he did, and he wrestles with this theophany, this visible, physical image, as it were, of... Uh, the presence of God as an angelic being. And he says, Lord, I want you to know, I want to know that you were going to bless me and you've got to protect me and keep me. And he struggles and, and, you know, and all of this. Oh, my friend, there's something powerful that happens in the struggle of a prayer room. There's something powerful that happens when you've got to push through in the spirit. There's some things, folks, spiritually, you can't microwave it. You can't internet it. You, you can't Google it. You've got to get a hold of God and grab the horns of an altar and say, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. You say, oh, pastor, that's like, that's old time Pentecost now. We're in 2021. We're crazy if we don't think we need the struggle of a prayer room. There's times you've got to just get alone with God and say, God, if you don't bless me, I don't know what I'm going to do. There's a strength that comes in that struggle. I hope we're not raising a generation of people that doesn't recognize the value of the struggle. The value of saying, God, I've got to have your help. I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to stop until I know that you're going to bring me through this dilemma. You're going to bring me through this crisis. You're going to make a way where there seems to be no way. You've got to sometimes get on the floor, get on the carpet. You have got to get your head down. You have got to say, Lord, I need you. And get a hold of God for yourself. You can't get it from your parents, your grandparents, your youth leader, or your pastor. you got to get a hold of it for yourself. you got to say, God, you're my God. Hallelujah. You're the one I go to in a time of need. I've got no plan B. I've got no other options. It's either you or it's nothing. Jacob got to that point and finally the Lord, through this image of a theophany, touched the hollow of his thigh, changed his name to Israel. You're not going to be a deceiver anymore. You didn't try to finagle your way out of this you got a whole i'm gonna change your name to israel you're a prince now the people are still called by that name all of these years later because of the strength that came from the struggle of one man that said i've got to have a touch from god so the next day they get ready to meet esau and this is interesting this is something i saw this week i never had seen before it communicated even to the family the level of priority and importance that Jacob put on his family. Now, we know that Jacob had 12 sons. And we know that those 12 sons came from his wives. But it wasn't just Leah and Rachel. Uh, there were also sons that he had from their handmaids, as was the custom of that day. But it would be multiple sons. And, of course, uh, there were the ladies, the wives. In this case, he had two wives. And and they had handmaids. So there were, there were sons of the handmaids. There were sons of Leah. And there was one son from Rachel. Well, he lines them all up. 
And as they're going to go and approach Esau, he didn't know if Esau is still mad. Esau was like very wealthy, very affluent, very, uh, uh, he was a leader. He had servants and cattle and he had his own army, his own militia. And, and Jacob was never a match for his twin in a physical realm. And he knew that. And this is why he, he fought with God all night to make sure there was going to be that covering on his life when he met his brother again. They've been separated for years. And so when they get ready to go, as is Jacob's strategic mind, he places his family in importance and he takes the handmaids and their sons and puts them in the front. I guess they were the most expendable. He sends them forward first and then second in line comes Leah and her sons. Second level of importance. And then finally, the third group that goes forward is Rachel and Joseph. Because if Esau is still mad, maybe he can take his anger out on the handmaids and their sons. And if it's lingering, he may take out Leah and them. But I'm not putting Joseph out front and Rachel, my beloved. They're going to be in the back of the line. Because maybe his anger will be appeased by them. But what happens? We know what happens. Esau says, your land is, my land is your land. This is like, you know, a reunion. He loves them. God had already gone before. You know, in our minds, sometimes we can make something to be a big dilemma. But God said, I've already gone ahead of you and taken care of it. You're in strategy mode. You're in self-preservation mode. You're trying to make sure you've thought it all through. And God has already gone ahead. Oh, I feel like telling somebody today that that dilemma, that that obstacle that you see out there that you think is lingering. Uh, oh, my friend, when you got a hold of God the night before, God already had made a way. He'd already turned the heart of that person. He's already at work. You don't have to live in fear. God's got your back. God's going to make a way where there seems to be no way. He can change the heart of your employer. He can change the heart of your neighbor, a family member, it doesn't matter who it is, God is at work. And so this order of importance was not lost on the family. All the other brothers saw it. They knew that he loved Joseph more. They knew that he and Rachel coming up the back meant that they were the prized family members. Nothing had to be said. It was obvious. And if that wasn't clear, then... After they live in peace and prosperity and God blesses them, he gives Joseph a coat of many colors. Now back then, a coat that had many colors was a coat that was very expensive because every color had to go through a different dye process and all of that was an expense. And so the more colors you had in your garment, the more expensive that garment was. And Jacob didn't get one of these coats for every son that he had. He got it for one son, Joseph. And Joseph wore it proudly. Do you guys see this coat? You know, Dad got it for me. Yes, we know. Little pipsqueak boy, when we get you away from Dad, we'll squish you like a grape. You could just see them just talking to each other. And just, now oh, here he comes. And if that wasn't enough, then Joseph would show up at the dinner table and tell them all about dreams that he had had. In his coat of many colors. Hey, you guys, I had a dream last night. Who cares? No, I want to tell you about it. I had a dream and there was this really bright star and all the other stars all bowed down to that really bright star. 
Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. The brothers, the jealousy just kept growing. It became anger. They knew what he was saying. He was saying that one day all of his other brothers would bow down to him. You really think you're something? Dad loves you more than us. We know that, but that's not enough. You're going to rub it in our face. Oh, man, I'm only going to get... And so when he was 17 years old, his brothers were out tending the herds, and he had, and his dad sent him out there to be with the brothers, and he had to go find them. And they said, no, they're not here. They've moved. They're in Dothan. He had to ask around. Finally, he got to where they were at. They were way over there. And the Bible said they, the brothers seen him coming a long ways off. And they said, oh, here comes the dreamer boy. You ain't got daddy out here to protect you now. Oh, isn't that something? He wore his coat out here to meet us, to rub it in again. And the Bible said as they watched him afar off, they plotted to kill him. When he gets up here, we're going to take him out. We ain't got to worry about this guy no more because daddy ain't here to save him. And I've had about all of him I can handle. And the brothers all plotted to kill him. But Reuben, the oldest one, said, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let, 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 well, let's just take him and, and just put him down here in this, in this pit. The Bible said there was no water in it, so it was an old well that had dried up. Let's just put him down in this vacant well, and we'll just, we'll just hold him for a little while. He was just trying to appease the anger of his brothers. I mean, we're getting ready to eat anyhow. We're getting ready to break bread. It was about time for lunch. And, and let, let's just put him in the pit. That will just teach him a lesson. That will humble him. So the brothers were like, yeah, that's fine. So they caught him, you know, oh, come here, Joseph. Oh, we love you. Oh, isn't that beautiful? They ripped his coat off, and then they, like the rest of the women, he couldn't overcome They were all stronger than him, older than him. They outnumbered him, put him down in the bottom of the well, and then they all sat down to eat lunch. Reuben had to go take care of some herds, so he was out of the way for a little bit. And so after Reuben was gone, they all started saying, now here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill him. He's going to die a slow death. And then we're going to take and put blood on his garment and take it back to dad and tell dad that some wild beast overtook him. And while they're plotting and killing him, there's a band of Ishmaelites that are on their way to Egypt to sell their spices and ointments. And they're coming down the road. And Judah, one of the other brothers, interesting because Judah means praise. Judah says, wait just a second, let's not kill him. There's no profit in that. What if we just sold him to these Ishmaelites? We'll make money. They can take him as a slave into Egypt. We'll never see him again. And we'll tell dad that he died, but then his blood won't be on our hands. It's, it, and we'll make money. It, it's the perfect solution. We'll never hear from him again. He'll be gone. And we'll make some money. We'll tell dad, you know, same thing you all came up with. So Reuben wasn't there. They listened to Judah. Judah did that to spare his life also. And so they did that. They came to the Ishmaelites. They bring him up out of the well. Here he is, a strong, young 17-year-old boy. They're like, yeah, we'll give you 20 shekels. They're like, sold! They take him, bind his hands, put him in the back of the caravan. They make their way on down. And Joseph, sitting on that back of the caravan with his legs hanging off the back, looks at those faces of his brother betrayed by his own family and their faces and the looks are seared into his memory as a 17 year old boy and he goes down the trail all he had known was the love of his mother and father all he had known was the careful 
embrace of his Savior that was given him dreams and visions as a young man. But early on, he learns the pain of betrayal. The pain of resistance. And it's in his spirit and his heart. How are you going to react now, Joseph? You're going to get a victim mentality? Here's what's interesting about this story. They do. They take the garment back to the dad. And they're like, oh, we don't know. We came across this garment. They put on their best acting deal. We don't know if it's Joseph's or not, but it looks like it was that one you bought for him. And there's blood. And his dad is just crying because he loved Joseph. And they all tried to console him. The family, the daughter, everybody tried. He wasn't consolable because he loved Joseph so much. And he's like, I'll go to the grave with him. I can't live. And they look at all of that, and the brothers are just reaffirmed in their position. that They they see how much their dad grieves over him, and it just bothers them because they don't feel the love like he had for the brother. But over time, Jacob has to turn loose because he just knows that Joseph is dead. Some things that you think are a dead-end street, God is working on the other side. Mm, Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost in this place. And even though he had been betrayed by his brothers, even though he had been sold into slavery, God was still at work. Because Joseph at 17 years old begins to experience resistance, the pain, the struggle of betrayal. But when he gets to Egypt and they put him up on the auction block and they're selling him into slavery, he is purchased by Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the guard of all of Egypt's armies. Egypt is the most powerful nation in the world at that time. They have the biggest army, navy, military in the world. And Potiphar is in charge of the military. And he's down there. I could use an extra hand at the house. I wonder who thousands of people being put up on the auction block. But God directs him to a 17-year-old boy. Puts something in his heart that says, I'll buy him. Right away, Joseph sees that when one door closes, God opens another door. The adversity of his brother did not break him. And my friend, what does not break you will make you. Sometimes you hurt because someone close to you scarred you so deeply. A family member, a spouse, a son, or a daughter. It hurts so bad you're not sure you can go on, but you do. And God gives you an opportunity in the wake of that hurt to go to the next level. Oh, my friends, sometimes you have to suffer hurt to be able to grow. They're just growing pains, but God's still got your back. God's still making a way where there is no way. God is still going ahead. Hallelujah. Oh, Joseph, what are you going to do? You're going to have a bad attitude from here on out? Or are you going to learn that there's strength in the struggle? There's strength in the resistance. Later on, many years later, when he's reunited with his brothers and they're fearful for their life, because then, fast forwarding now, 
Many years later, when he's now vice president of Egypt, he's in charge of all the corn being sold. The whole world is in a seven-year famine, and, and they don't know him, but he knows them. He sees his brothers. They come and kneel down just as his dream had told him. They kneel down before him because they have to go before Joseph to get permission to buy grain, uh, to bring back to their dad and bring to their family so they can survive. And it's only Egypt now that has the storehouse because only Egypt had a Joseph. Oh, my friend, don't you know that God, hallelujah, is going to bless a society, a culture, and a country where the church, hallelujah, can rise up and say, This is what thus saith the Lord. He reveals himself to them. He knew them because their faces had been bad. When they got pulled away from that caravan and he watched their faces, he knew. Many years later, they don't know him, but he knows them and they all bow down before him to ask for permission for food. He has to remove himself. He's crying. All the hurt and the pain comes flooding back. All of the emotions. But when he finally reveals himself to him, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there's something about pain that produces purpose and Passion, hurt uh, is the fertile ground for healing and it provides help for many others. Uh, even Jesus was betrayed by his good friend Judas, uh, but that betrayal led to the crucifixion and that crucifixion provided salvation to mankind. Oh my friend, what you may be going through, uh, it may not even be for your own personal strength. Uh, you're going through a test, uh, but it's going to give you a testimony and that testimony is not going to just give you victory. Uh, it's going to give victory to a lot of others people. It's going to give victory to your friends. It's going to give victory to your family. I know it wasn't easy to go through, but God sent you ahead to prepare a way. Hmm. Proverbs drives it home with this short statement in the 24th chapter and the 10th verse. If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. We know that statement is true. So the counterpoint is also true. If you rise up in the day of adversity, your strength is great. It may be the loss of a relationship. It may be a report from a doctor. It may be the hand of fate. But make no mistake about it, my friend. Adversity is born in the furnace of affliction. But I rise today to remind you that in the furnace of affliction, that's the place where God calls His chosen people. Isaiah 48.10 Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of of affliction. He said it's in the furnace of affliction that I looked down and said I can use her for my kingdom. I can use him for my kingdom. If you'd have never gone through the struggle, you'd never been able to catch the eye of heaven and God said I need him or her for my kingdom. If you'd never gone through the pain and the betrayal you'd have never got the strength that you needed to rise up and to say I can be victorious. Oh my friend, that betrayal, that affliction that resistance it was there for your own good because it was there where God finds His chosen ones. After the furnace of affliction, 
comes the tempering of trials. Joseph made the most of his opportunity. He could have got a bad attitude. I got to go work. I wasn't made for this. I'm going home with my dad. I'm used to the comforts of my father's love. And now I'm working as a slave. He could have had a bad attitude, but he didn't. In the midst of adversity, he rose up. He didn't just survive. He thrived. He made the most. He worked day and night. Before long, he worked his way up to being the master of Potiphar's house. He was in charge of all the other servants. So much so that everybody admired him, including Potiphar's wife, who sees this young strapping man, this man with leadership abilities and qualities, and she has a husband who's on the road all the time, running around fighting armies. He's gone, and she looks at Joseph and says, I want you, big boy. Joseph is like, what is up with this woman? He's trying to avoid awkward situations and working his way around and trying not to be in the same room, but she keeps getting closer and closer, and she's not used to being told no. She's Potiphar's wife. Everybody says yes to Miss Potiphar. She finally grabs Joseph, and he once again loses his coat leaves it with her and flees, runs. Some things you've got to just get away from. Some people say, well, I think I'll teach her a Bible study. You need to let somebody else teach her a Bible study. Joseph could have said, now let's sit down and study together. Let me tell you why I can't do this thing. There's some things you've got to just get out of Dodge. You got to just leave the environment. You stand around and try to spiritualize a fleshly situation. You got to just flee. Joseph said, I can't do this sin against my God. And she went to him again and tried to get a hold of him, tried to convince him. And she, and he said, no, boy. She said, I'm going to make you pay for that. I'm not used to rejection, boy. You're going to pay, young man. You're going to see. And when Potiphar comes back, she makes up this big story that Joseph tried to rape her and, 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 and lie with her and all this stuff. And Potiphar's mad and he's jealous. And I put everything in chart. I gave you everything. You try to take advantage of my wife. My, he throws him into prison. All Joseph was trying to do, he told Potiphar's wife, I can't do this sin against God. Sometimes you're just trying to do the right thing and it seems like everything's being thrown at you but ladies and gentlemen it was the trials of Joseph that prepared him for the palace every trial makes the resistance stronger and sometimes you'll even begin to question yourself and it's not enough that it's just the furnace of affliction by now it seems like it's a pile on situation it's the the tempering of trials we read about it in genesis 25:21 because even if we go back to jacob's mother who also was barren and bible says that isaac her husband entreated or got a hold of god for his wife because she was barren and the lord was entreated of him and rebecca his wife conceived so now rebecca who can't have children she conceives and she has children but this is something different. She's talked to her friends and, and, and her time of preparation is different than everybody else. There's a struggle. There's a fight going inside her. They don't have sonogram. They, she don't know that she's got twins. She went from having a barren womb to having twins. That's how God works. He said, I'll give you a double for your trouble. God, hallelujah, when he can make a way. He doesn't just level the playing field. He puts on blessings on top of blessings. 
But because you can't see, you don't know. She's like, there's something wrong with me. I, I, there's a fight going on. I talk to my friends, my neighbors, and they never had this. Something's not right in me. And, and, and the Bible said, and, and she started talking to God in Genesis 25 and 22. And the children struggled within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? Why? Why am I going through all of this? It wasn't enough that I was barren. And now when I finally have kids, I've got a pregnancy unlike all of my friends. There's a struggle. There's a fight. There's constant turmoil. And she went to inquire of the Lord. And here's what the Lord told her. Verse 23. Two nations are in thy womb. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. You wonder why you're dealing with an internal conflict. Can I tell you why? Because the devil wants you. The devil sees the hand of God is upon your life. The devil wants to steal your future. The devil wants to steal your destiny. He wants to take every virtue out of your body, every shred of decency, and destroy you on the heap and the pile of buried, burned, destroyed lives. But God said, not so fast, devil. And God is fighting for you too. And you feel that internal conflict. That doesn't mean that God is not present. That doesn't mean that your promise is aborted. That means that there's life in you. Oh, Rebecca, this is not going to be a stillbirth. These are not calm waters. If that was, that would be danger. But no, what you feel is life. What you feel is a struggle. That's the evidence of the miracle of God in you. Oh, my friend, you wonder why you feel the struggle and the pain. Who will tell you why? Because God's got something special for you. God's got a double blessing for you. There is a fight for your soul. But you're going to come through the struggle. You're going to come through the resistance. And you're going to be stronger. And you're going to have a test. And the testimony is going to come. The promises of God do not come to fruition without a struggle. They're born in the trial. The resistance is not an indication that God is absent. It's proof that the promise of God has come into life. The struggle is evidence of the miracle. The prison is the path to the promise. Oh, Joseph, now you're thrown into prison. It's not enough you were sold into slavery, but now you're thrown into prison. But Joseph, the dream does not die in the dark dungeons of Potiphar's prison. It's just the promise. Getting in position. That dream that was born in you at a young age. You don't see the path. But you got to go through the prison before you can get to the palace. If Joseph is never thrown into the prison... He never gets in the position in the palace to be the savior that God sent him ahead to be. If Joseph falls into the temptation of Potiphar's wife, he never goes to prison. He never gets in the position. Oh, my friend, the struggle, the betrayal, the prison. It was just to get you in the position for the miraculous. 
It's the resistance, but that's where the strength is going to come from. That's where God's going to begin to work. If you'd never gone through that trial, you'd never be where you are now. Oh, that's why Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. There is a process to get to the fruition of the promise. And many times that process involves a prison. It involves resistance. The challenge was given to America by its president at the time, John F. Kennedy, to put a man on the moon and to get him back to earth in 1961. The dream is born. From that date forward, 400,000 people at 21,000 organizations begin to work to make the dream come true. But on January 27, 1967, Apollo 1, the very first of 17 missions, Apollo 1 catches on fire just 40 miles up the road on the launch pad during a training mission and burns, killing all three astronauts in that oxygen-rich environment. Before they can get the hatch off, they burn to death in a flash fire inside that capsule. The furnace of affliction. The dream that is born. Put a man on the moon. Has to go through the furnace of affliction. What are you going to do, America? You going to give up now? America says no. To honor these astronauts, we're going to go forward. They gave their life for a cause bigger than themselves. But then as they go forward, it's not without the tempering of trials. They nearly lose three more astronauts on Apollo 13. But a nation and even a world comes together and begins to pray after there's an unexpected explosion in the command modules. Engineers are working around the clock trying to figure out how to get them home as oxygen is slipping away from the spacecraft because there was an explosion in the O2 oxygen tank. Jerry Bostic, the flight controller of the mission, thunders from the control room when the engineers wanted to give up and mission control had done all they could and every filter that was made and boxes that were made out of duct tape and cardboard and flight manuals and everything to try to figure out how to get them home. We can't lose anybody else. They're, they're exasperated. They're working day and night without sleep and they don't know what to do and they're just about ready to give up and Jerry Bostic thunders his voice out of the control room and says failure is not an option we may have had an unexpected explosion in the oxygen tank of human beings in the last two years through a virus called COVID-19 but I rise today to remind you that for the church failure is not an option failure is not an option Ladies and gentlemen, the church was not designed to fail. It was born in the furnace of affliction. It has been tempered by trials much bigger than COVID. And God is telling His church it's time to push through the pushback. It's time to lean into the wind. It's time to not just survive, but to take this opportunity to thrive. Because ladies and gentlemen, there's a revival in the resistance.
After the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 men besides women and children, Jesus tells his disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side of the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, not on the boat this time, goes up in the mountains and prays and stays behind. And the disciples were going across the sea in Matthew 14 as the story is told to us. The Bible says that they encounter a contrary wind. The wind was needed. They were fishermen. They knew how to harness the wind and and to put the sails out and the fullness of the wind would push them across that sea. But this was a contrary wind. This was a wind that they could not get a hold of. It blew this way and that way and come behind. And in front, it was contrary. It didn't have a systematic approach. It was all over the place. And they didn't, though they were professional fishermen, they didn't know what to do with this thing. It was all over the place in the sea and the tempest and the waves. Then the Bible says that Jesus comes walking on the water in the fourth watch, which means it was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Fear grips the heart of these professional fishermen. If the contrary wind was not enough, now when they see Jesus, they think they've seen a ghost and they cry out. Hardened fishermen with calloused hands and, and rugged lives, they cry out, the Bible says, for fear. They think they're seeing a ghost. This must be it. This must be what you encounter when you're about to die. They see Jesus, but they don't recognize him. They, they think it's just a ghost. They had to learn a valuable lesson. And here's the value winds bring the miraculous. It's the contrary winds. I love the imagery here because Jesus comes walking on the water. That's why they thought it was a ghost because they never seen nobody else walk on water. This man's walking on the water. He's not just walking on still water. He's walking on troubled waters with a contrary wind. Uh, I love the imagery of that. Even if you look at Mary Magdalene when she gets to the tomb, uh, that stone that was in front of the tomb, uh, the Bible said it was rolled away. That thing that had separated Jesus from his followers, that thing that appeared to seal his death was rolled away. uh, And the Bible said the angel was sitting on top of the stone. Oh, my friend, the Bible said heaven is his throne and earth is his throne. Still, it doesn't matter what's happening on this earth. God's in charge of it all. I say God has got his foot on it. God's not surprised by anything in your life. God's not surprised by anything that this earth is facing. I've come to remind you that God's got his foot on it. Mm. We may be facing contrary winds. I rise today to remind you that this is just the season that Jesus is going to come walking on the water. Now, I love what he says to his disciples. The first thing he says to them is, be of good cheer. The second thing he says is, it is I. And the third thing that he says is, be not afraid. So let's examine those three things in the three, four minutes that we have. First of all, be of good cheer. I love that. That's the same thing Paul told all his fellow sailors in Acts 27 when they were in a storm. Be of good cheer. Say, what? We're in a storm. We're going to die. Be of good cheer. Here's the principle. Rejoice in the resistance. Everybody else would react by wringing their hands. But those of us that know what it is to be filled with His Spirit are going to rejoice in the resistance. 
That's what Peter and John did after they beat them and flayed their backs with the cat of nine tails and told them, don't you ever preach. They all went back and gathered with their little fellow brothers and sisters in the house and had their little church there. And they counted themselves blessed that they were worthy to suffer shame for his name. They couldn't steal their joy. Oh, my friend, hell's never so weak as when it can't steal your joy. Though you've gone through some resistance and some betrayal and the furnace of affliction and contrary wind, you still got a praise in your mouth. You still got a shout in your heart. You still rise up to say, this is the day that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Why? I'm going to rejoice in the resistance. Come on, apostolic Pentecostals. It's time to rejoice in the midst of the struggle. I still got hands that I can raise. I still got a voice that I can lift. I still got ability to say, God, you are the mighty God. Hmm. Second thing he says, it is I. Because not only are we to rejoice in the resistance, we are to get a revelation in the resistance. It is I. Oh, my friend, do you realize who your Savior is? He's not some puny God. It is I. I think God's trying to tell us all that right now. It is I. I know the doctor's report is bad, but it is I. I know the betrayal and the pain hurts, but it is I. I know the report is not good, but it is I. I know you can't explain what you're going through, but it is I. You got to get a revelation that Jesus is the mighty God in Christ. He's the everlasting Father. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the Prince of Peace. It is I. It is I. You got to get a revelation. You're not going through this storm by yourself. Jesus is on your side. And Jesus is on top of the water. And then finally, be not afraid. Because there's reassurance in the resistance. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Joseph, be not afraid. It wasn't long and Joseph now rises to the point where he's in charge of all the other prisoners. It doesn't matter where you put this guy. He rises to the top. Because where sin abounds... Grace does much more of that. <laughs> he was an Old Testament type of Christ. It don't matter what you put them through. They're going to come up to the top of the water. And like a bobber, it don't matter how high the seas get or how much the waves thunder. There's still God walking on the water. He's still going to rise up to the top. He's in charge of all the other prisoners. The hand of God is not absent in adversity. It is revealed in resistance. It becomes clear in the contrary environments. Resistance brings reward. Resistance. You think all them people flying across the line first in those Olympic races... You think they're standing there with gold medals around their neck because they just rolled out of bed and put on some fancy sneakers? 
Don't you know they got out of bed thousands of times while it was still dark? When they didn't feel like it. And they got out there and went through the trials and went through the temptations that sometimes in adverse weather they ran and ran and ran and ran and their stomach is hurting and their side is crying out. But they push through the resistance. Why? Because you get stronger in the resistance. One day he's going to say to you and I, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and you're going to walk on streets of gold. But I come today to tell you, it's not going to be without a struggle. You're going to have a struggle. You're going to go through pain and heartache. But oh, my friend, God's going to have a people, and there is a reward that's going to come from the resistance. A couple more trials. Joseph has sent to the palace to interpret someone else's dream. And by doing that, his dream comes true because sometimes you have to invest in someone else's dream before your own dream will come to pass. That's why the Bible says, Rejoice with them that rejoice. Well, I can't rejoice with her. I've been wanting the same thing all my life. Seems like she just stumbles into blessings. Why don't you go ahead and rejoice with her? Because it may be God's watching you, and if you can rejoice with someone else's dream, He'll bring your dream to pass. My God, that's a word for somebody right now. You're going to die of jealousy, or you're going to step up. What would have happened if Joseph's brothers would have just bought into his dream? They wouldn't have spent all those years dealing with the pain of betraying their father. The hurt they saw him every day. The weight that he carried. It wasn't just him. They had to carry the weight too. The pain and the heartache. They couldn't buy into somebody else's dream. What are you going to do, Joseph? You're going to get up there and say, Well, I'll tell you the interpretation of your dream, but first, I want to know what you're going to do for me. Would have never happened. They were all. Here's what it means. There's going to be seven years of famine. But before that, there's going to be seven years of plenty. Here's what it means when the seven skinny cows came up out of the Nile River and ate the seven fat cows. Famine's going to overtake us. But for seven years, there's going to be plenty. So here's what you do. You store up for it while there's seven years of plenty. Because when we go through the famine, the storehouses of Egypt will not only bless this nation, but they'll come from every other nation. They'll come to our storehouses. Pharaoh says, and I'm putting you in charge of it all. The season that is coming upon Egypt and the rest of the world will bring them to their knees. But it's a man with a relationship with God man that has been tested by trials, forged in the furnace of affliction that can lead them through seven years of famine. Ladies and gentlemen, the season that we are in is not the season for the church to die or to shrink back. This is the day that the Lord hath made. He has brought us to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is the season for the church to come forth. Not to retreat. 
not to live in fear. This is our moment. This is time for us to lean into the wind. People are going to come from all over the world saying, what does this mean? And the church has got to rise up and say, let me tell you about a man named Jesus. He can walk on the water. He can turn the stones into bread. He's a God that can do anything at any time. He can heal your body. He can deliver you from sin and addiction. Oh, my friend, it's the church. Hallelujah. That's going to rise up at this moment. Because victory is our business. Victory is our business. In the wake of Pearl Harbor, the president at that time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, addressed the nation with the famous declaration that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. His emulation of confidence and the final outcome permeated everything that we did as a nation at that time. General Motors was one of those companies that went from standing still in the area of war munitions to converting almost 90% of its 41 operating divisions into making a war machine that could compete with Germany and all of its futuristic planes, jets, tanks, cutting-edge technology. General Motors... They start working around the clock. Their war product sales shot from 406 million in 1941 to 3.5 billion in 1943. They started building trucks and tanks for the Army, Grumman fighter torpedo planes for the Navy. They made 7,546 Avengers and 5,920 Wildcats before the war was over. And in addition to what they were making for sales in this nation, they built 20,380 trucks for allied nations. When it was all said and done, they built and manufactured 10% of everything America made during the war was made by one company called General Motors. How did they do it? They harnessed the American workforce with a slogan that hung in every factory. Those four words, victory is our business. Victory is our business business. A great generation of hard-working Americans brought victory once again to our nation through the sheer determination that failure was not an option. Now here we are, ladies and gentlemen, in 2021. We are not NASA and we are not General Motors. We are something greater. We are the church of the living God. And victory is our business, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Revelation 12, 11 says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. It was a combined effort. It's the blood of the lamb that gives us forgiveness of sins. But it's also human beings going through trials and tests and adversity and resistance that gets a testimony. And they overcame him. Who's him? That's the enemy. That's the devil. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They got up every day and said, I've been through persecution, but I'm still standing because victory is our business. And I'm going to come through this. And when I I'm going to have a praise in my mouth. Come on, church. What are we going to do? They love not their own lives unto the death. You say, Pastor, that all sounds great, but 
I don't even feel like I can conquer my own addictions, much, much less change the world. You may be right. But if you choose to serve God, if you choose to give your heart to a cause that's bigger than yourself, you're in the business of victory because that's the business that Jesus is in. Need I remind you today that he's never lost one battle. The Bible says that Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. You're on the winning side. And if Jesus is for you, who can be against you? Who can be against you? As I close, you can stand to your feet. In our text from the book of Romans, Paul says, I am persuaded. He didn't say he hoped for the best. He didn't say he was praying for a favorable outcome. He said, I am persuaded. I'm convinced. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He was convinced of victory. The condition was not in his ability. The confidence was not in the environment. It was pleasant. Without conflict. In fact, it was quite the opposite. But his confidence was in a Savior that would allow, not allow anything to come between him and his people. Not even our own mistakes. No height. No power, no principality, nothing present or anything to come can separate me from the love of God. Not even our own fear. Perhaps the greatest battle that Joseph faced is when his brothers came before him and asked for food. Not knowing it was their brother they had sold into slavery. They didn't recognize him, but he knew them. just a 17 year old boy they sold him into slavery what are you going to do now Joseph you're going to forgive you're going to trust again or will you remain a hostage to the hurt it was a bigger battle than the prison it was a bigger battle than Potiphar's house but sometimes when you don't have any choices it's an easy decision to make. But he's got a choice now. What you going to do, Joseph? Then your power to do whatever you want to do. He says to his brothers, I'm Joseph, your brother. Never lost his identity. Just to remind them, he says, who you sold into Egypt. But then it's clear. Joseph said, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on this earth to save your lives. Even though he's in this powerful position, Joseph sees that it's not about him. He was just an instrument that God used to preserve his family. God sent me ahead.
to preserve you and dad and mom and your families. So then it was not you who sent me here. He tells them, you've got to forgive yourself. Don't beat up yourself. It wasn't you that did it. But it was God. And then he says something that blows my mind. He says to his brothers, he made me, God made me, father to Pharaoh. Not like a son. He made me father to Pharaoh. He recognized that in the spirit realm, God had positioned him above the most powerful man in the world. Do you realize where God is trying to position this church in 2021? Not even subject to nations. But in a place where God speaks to his people. And his people give direction to the world. Oh, you think I'm just making this up? You'll never be a part of it then. But if you can get a revelation, good God Almighty. Jesus. Yes. I'm above your below. I'm above your below. Look to me because I rule. You don't. They don't. I do. Jesus. powerful is taking place right now in the spirit world there's a transformation that's taking there's a shift in the spirit realm right now somebody's going to get out of the boat and walk toward Jesus put your eyes on the storm put your eyes on the Savior 
Somebody's going to come close. He doesn't distance himself in the contrary winds. He beckons unto you. Come. Come unto me. All of you that are weary and heavy laden, come unto me. Trust in chariots and horses. But we shall remember the name of the Lord. Oh uh-huh. 